0: As you turn there, you're going to think, am I in the right place? Does does he mean for us to be looking at a genealogy? Because after all, I'm the guest preacher, and that means I can choose any text in the Bible I want to. And why in the world would we be looking at a genealogy? Because let's face it, I don't know if we're allowed to say this in church, but sometimes when we're reading through the Bible and we get to uh, to the genealogies, We get kind of bored, don't we? All these names, name after names of people we don't know. And we start wondering, is it okay if I just skip this? (laughs) If you've ever uh, tried to read your Bible through in a year, which is a good thing to do, you'll start on January 1st with a lot of vigor. And about January 3rd, you want to give up. Because that's when you get to Genesis 5, which is the first genealogy. And you think... Can I just skip it? Well, you can, but here's the point. You miss out on a lot. There is gold in these sections of scripture if we just dig a little bit. And so the reason I chose this text this morning is really two reasons. One, uh, Daniel tells me that he's going to be starting a preaching series through the gospel of John uh, soon. I don't know if y'all know that. Maybe I blew his uh, secret. Um, but the, the Gospel of John focuses a lot on the divinity of Christ. After all, it begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so in the Gospel of John, you get a lot about the divinity of Jesus. And so I wanted to have a complimentary text this morning that really grounds in the humanity of Jesus. And what better way of doing that than showing that Jesus was a real man, real flesh and blood, with a real family, with a family lineage that could be traced back to the beginning of time. So that's one purpose for why I chose this passage. The second is this, and that is that I want us to see through the end of this that the grace of God and the glory of Jesus is so great that even in these most mundane, in these most boring passages, Jesus is beautiful if we just look. And so let's look at this together. Luke chapter 3, verse 23, I don't know what the pattern is here, but the pattern of Scripture, when the, when the Word of God is read aloud by the people of God, they always stand. And so if you will please stand, because this is the Word of God. It is His Word. It is without error. It is inspired by Him. And it is the means through which He has ordained to work in our life. And so what that means is when we read this, we read this with reverence. And we read it with expectation that, yes, even in a genealogy, God can change our life. So the gospel of Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathot, the son of... Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maoth, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Joda, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Cosim, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Jerem, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Minna, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin. The son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reah, the son of Peleg, the son of Abra, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared. The son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would work through his word. Lord God, we do ask that you would send your spirit down to come upon us and to work through the power of your word to change our hearts, to cause us to repent, to cause us to believe, to cause us to have great faith in the purposes of Jesus. Lord, work. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Now, one reason I believe that these genealogies are difficult for us is not only is it a bunch of foreign, unfamiliar names, but we are not typically a people that are very rooted in family and place. America is not a very old nation, and therefore most of our families are, to our understanding, not very old, not very established. You see, in ancient cultures, families often lived in the same area or even the same plot of land for centuries and centuries. You can go back uh, and you can trace your lineage within that very home back seven, eight, nine, ten generations. They knew their ancestry. They could trace their family back multiple generations. and, And we frankly aren't like that. Some of you may know a lot about your family history, and some of you probably knew your grandparents, maybe even your great-grandparents. Maybe you, you've heard their stories, the stories of your parents and your, your great-grandparents, but most of us can't really go very far back. I know I didn't. I am probably the worst among all of you of knowing my family history. I didn't know hardly anybody in my family. I, I only met my grandparents a couple times. I didn't really know any of them or know their, their uh, history, I found out only recently, within the last few years, the reason why my parents kind of kept us away from their family is because our history's not that great. My mom's side of the family, particularly, was filled with a lot of racists. Uh, it was only recently, to my, to my shame, I found out that one of my great grandfathers, however far down the line, helped start the KKK in Georgia. So my family history's not that great. On my dad's side, his father was a very successful CEO of Bloomingdale's, lots of money, left his wife and my father when he was four years old. He wrote a book about his life, never mentioned my dad, kind of a scoundrel. He actually had three families. My family's not that great of a history. If you trace back the name Guinan, it's a dark Irish. I won't tell you about that history, but if you want to look it up on Wikipedia, you can see my family's shame. Our families, if we go back far enough, and perhaps even some of us not very far, we have to travel. We, uh, we don't have a great story. What we find is a lot of shame. We don't have very, very great family heritages. And I want us to see that neither did Jesus. We look at this genealogy, we see the family line, the history, the story of Jesus's family, and we see that he, like many of us, has a family that is filled with a bunch of nobodies and scoundrels, a lot of shame, a lot of sin. And this is where we see God's grace shine brightly because what is it that God does is in this History, this, this lineage, this genealogy, we see that God is weaving together thousands of years of history, multiple generations, hundreds of stories of suffering and sin and heartache and betrayal and unfaithfulness. And he does all of this for his glorious purpose, all for the sake of the exaltation of Christ as the redeemer of the world. That's what this genealogy shows. It shows how God works through normal people like us. He works through the small the sinner and the sufferer. And what this means for us, I want you to see this morning, is that your significance or your sin or your suffering doesn't determine whether or not God will use you. I want us to see that God works by grace to redeem our personal stories in order to connect us to the greater story of Christ. And so let's begin looking back again at verses 23 and 25. I want us to see that, that God uses the small, He uses the insignificant. I'll read a few of these verses again. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed. And he says that because, of course, Joseph wasn't his natural father. Uh, He was uh, born uh, miraculously through the Virgin Mary. So as was supposed of Joseph the son of Heli, the son of Methot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Ezlai, the son of Negai, the son of Maoth, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah. Now, I just read a bunch of names. Do you know who any of those people are? Nope. And if you think you do, you don't. Alright? These are a bunch of nobodies that nobody knows in history other than this one passage has forgotten. In this whole genealogy, we have a total of 67 names. And of those 67 names, you have 38 names, which cannot be found anywhere else in the Bible. And even those that are elsewhere in the Bible, most of them are fairly insignificant. They're just mentioned. In fact, of those 67 names, only nine of them are even mildly significant. Right When I was reading through that list earlier, you probably thought, oh, Abraham, I know that guy, finally a name that sounds familiar. Because most of these are insignificant nobodies in history. They are small. They weren't the big important people. They weren't like King David or uh, Abraham who fathered the nation or Noah who built the ark. They were normal, everyday people just like you and me. Most of us are nobodies. Now, I know I don't know most of y'all, so if any of you are really important people and I don't realize it, I'm sorry, but you're not so important that I know you. (laughs) And you know what? I'm not important either. Nobody knows me. We are nobodies. And in the grand scheme of things, according to the way our culture counts significance, we are insignificant. Now, this may be a hard thing to accept because we live in a culture that tells us that we need to be important, that we need to be somebody who does amazing and awesome things. We need to make a big difference. But the reality is most of us are ordinary and we are living simple, ordinary lives. One of the reasons why there is an epidemic of depression and anxiety and drug abuse amongst 20 and 30-year-olds in our culture is because our culture tells us that we have to be awesome But life doesn't typically turn out that way. The valedictorian in high school says, you need to go change the world. And five and ten years later, most people are just changing the toner in the copy machine. Or maybe they're changing diapers wondering what they're missing out on in life. And so people are getting depressed and they're getting angry because life is not what they thought it was supposed to be. For most people, life is not one awesome adventure after another with every day being more Instagram-worthy than the next. It's just not that way. And the pictures and the presentations we put on social media are a lie and a facade to try to tell the world that our life is awesome when it's simply ordinary. Our culture tells us that we need to be important, that we need to be famous, that we need to be significant, and we couple that with a materialistic worldview that says that this life is all there is, there is nothing greater, there is nothing more that can be seen or experienced than what you see here, and so it's no wonder that as people realize that most of life is actually just ordinary mundane, that they become depressed and angry and anxious and they get addicted to anything that will help them to escape their sadness, People in our culture, and that includes us because we are part of our culture, long to be great. We want to be known. We want to be important. We want to be part of something great. But for most of us, life is not always exciting and awesome. For most people, life is normal and mundane and sometimes boring and seemingly insignificant. We will live our lives. We'll have a small impact on those closest around us. And then we will die and we will be forgotten. There's a whole book of the Bible that tells us that. It's Ecclesiastes. We read it earlier. Think about this. There are 7 billion people in the world. And 100 years from now, all 7 billion people will be dead and will be replaced by 8 billion new people who don't remember us. We are small. We are just normal, everyday, insignificant nobodies trying to serve God in the mundaneness of life. Now, I don't say that to depress you. I say that because it's true. But here's the good news. The good news is that while our culture says only the big people, the important people, the awesome people can be used, what the Bible tells us is that God uses small people. These insignificant nobodies, all these names we read that you don't know, they're nobodies. But God uses the nobodies to accomplish his purpose. Because when we are connected to Jesus, then we are connected not to our significance, but we're connected to his significance. As we look at this genealogy, it's mostly a bunch of nobodies. Nobody knows who they are. I can't tell you anything about them. But God knows who they are because they belong to him. And he is weaving their stories into the story of Christ. The normal way, beloved, hear this. The normal way that God works is not through those who do the spectacular. It is through those who are simply faithful in the ordinary, common, everyday, boring events of life. It's normal people using the normal means of grace, raising children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's what God uses. That's how God changes the world is through generational faithfulness, working through common, ordinary people. Small people doing seemingly small things that God uses for eternal good. I want you to consider this. Mary, the mother of Jesus, right? Mary was a seemingly insignificant person. She was a poor, probably illiterate based on her time and culture. Nobody in the middle of nowhere. Where was she from? She's from Nazareth. You know what Nazareth was? The podunk town in Israel that nobody in Israel liked. She was an insignificant nobody from nowhere. And the angel Gabriel comes to her and says, "The Holy Spirit will come to you, and you will uh, give birth to Jesus, and He will save their, peop- their people from their sins." And what is her response? Her response is faith and worship. And she says, we have in, uh, in, in earlier in the Gospel of Luke, uh, she sings the Magnificat. Her, her, her song of response where she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And she recounts better than any seminary grad can do off the top of their head the stories and the promises of the Old Testament, how God is fulfilling all this. Well, how is it that Mary had faith? How is it that she, being an illiterate 14-year-old in the middle of nowhere, knew the promises of God from the Old Testament? How is that possible? It's because she was taught by her parents, who were taught by their parents, who were taught by their parents, who were taught by their parents. It's generations of nobodies being faithful to the Lord and passing down the faith Until the Lord worked incredibly to deliver the Messiah. And so maybe you feel small and insignificant. Maybe you struggle wishing your life had more purpose, whatever that means in our culture. But I want you to see this and I want you to believe this. That the mother or the father who is simply faithful to pray for their children and to teach them the ways of the Lord and teach them the the priority of the church and of coming to corporate worship or the grandparent who lovingly invests time to pour into the grandkids for the sake of Christ or the, the, the person who loves sacrificially or the person who is simply faithful to extend kindness and mercy and love to a stranger in the name of Jesus or those of you who serve faithfully in the church quietly You're teaching Sunday school, you keep a nursery so so that other people can worship. I want you to consider this. These people, the simple, ordinary faithful, because they are connected to Jesus, are far more significant than even Thomas Jefferson. Now, Thomas Jefferson is somebody we would say is important, right? People know who Thomas Jefferson is, his legacy has been around for. Over 200 years now. He wrote the Declaration of Independence. Had a, had a had a huge impact on history and in our nation. But you know what? The Declaration of Independence has an expiration date. You know what's not going to be in the new heavens and the new earth? The Declaration of Independence. The Liberty Bell won't be in the new heavens and the new earth. The Constitution of the United States of America will not be and the new heavens in the north. But you know what will be? God. Your children. By God's grace, your neighbor. By God's grace, the stranger who hears the gospel and repents of his sin and believes upon Christ. And so who is more eternally significant? Thomas Jefferson for writing the Declaration of Independence? Or the nobody from nowhere who teaches their children the gospel whom they believe? You want to be extraordinary. You want to do something really unique and radical in this culture. You want to really make an impact. Here's what you do. If the Lord allows, you get married. And if you're married, you love your husband and wife well. And whatever you do, whatever your station is in life, you're faithful. You live sacrificially for others. You model the love of Jesus in your life and your words. You share the gospel in word and deed. And yes, you may be normal and ordinary and seemingly insignificant. But when you do those things and you are connected to Christ... Through faith, then your life has real meaning and purpose that extends into eternity. God uses the small. Now, there's a second type of person that God uses that I want us to see here, and that is that God uses the sinner. Interspersed amongst all these nobodies in this genealogy, we find a few names that we recognize. And almost all these names that we recognize are identified with some kind of scandal. Look in verse Verse 33. Uh, so it's going on. The son of the son of in verse thirty three. The son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah. By the way, if you're ever reading these Bible names and you're not quite sure how to pronounce them, I'm going to give you a little trick. Okay, here's what you do: you just whatever it is, you say it like you think you know what you're talking about, and if you sound confident, people will believe you. Okay, I don't know if I'm saying these names right. I think I am, but... Um, so, I want us to pay attention to Judah. Who's Judah? We know this from the book of Genesis. Judah sold his brother into slavery and faked his death. But look in verse 34, the son of Jacob. Well, who is Jacob? Jacob is that guy that lied to his father in order to steal his brother's birthright. He's the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Abraham, the adulterer, the liar, Abraham, the guy that gave his wife over to another man in order to save his own skin twice. Well, look in verse 36, the son of Cain and the son of Arphaxad. See, I did it again. I don't know how to say that. The son of Shem, the son of Noah. Noah, we think of Noah, you know, from our nurseries, right? He's got the fuzzy little animals. It's all cute. Well, how did Noah's life end? Noah's life end ended as a disgraced drunk who cursed his own son. What we have here is a list of scoundrels, a, a list of big-time sinners. But I want us to focus on one in particular. Look at verse 31. The son of Melia, the son of Minna, the son of Metatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. It's David. We read about David's story in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel eleven is where it all comes to a head. At this point, David already has at least two wives, and he sees Bathsheba across the way, bathing on the roof. On the roof, he commits adultery. And in trying to cover up the adultery, he lies. He ends up effectively murdering Uriah, Bathsheba's wife. So he's an adulterer, he's a liar, he's a murderer. And that's all just in one chapter. And these are no small sins. These sins had a great effect on him, on his family, and on his nation. But what we see all throughout the Bible is that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And who does it tell us is the son of David that's in the line of Jesus? It's Nathan. Who's Nathan's mother? If we go back to 2 Samuel, you want to guess who Nathan's mother is? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. So God takes the story of David's betrayal, of his sin, of his adultery, of his gross abuse of power, and by grace works through his sin and weaves it into the greater story of Jesus. And here's the point I want us to see. We are sinners. And our sin will have an effect on us and it will affect our children. Okay, I'm not minimizing that, but our sin will not and cannot stop God's purposes. God works through sinners like us to tell the story of redemption. Now, I think as parents, we worry a lot. We worry about how badly we're going to ruin our kids. There's a saying that says, you know, don't worry about it. Our kids are resilient. But I really think that that puts too much pressure on our kids. It's not that... They are resilient and they can just overcome all of our sin. Our trust is in the fact that God is gracious and that by God's grace, even when we are faithless, he is faithful. And that he redeems our sins and failures and fits them into his purposes that he has planned before the foundation of the world. And so parents, we can rest and we can relax a little bit because we cannot out God's purpose for our life and for the lives of our children. The Bible tells us that not only does he work through this one family to bring Jesus, but that he is actually orchestrating all things in history and in the lives of his people to tell the ultimate story of the greatness of Christ, who is bringing renewal and redemption to all things. All of history, and the church in particular, is God's canvas. And on that canvas, he takes the scars and the wear and tear and the weathering and the holes of our sinful lives And rather than discarding us and seeing us as useless, he uses our scars and our failures and our sins to paint his redemptive masterpiece. Does our sin have an effect on us? Absolutely it does. And when you sin, you need to repent. But we don't need to be weighed down thinking that your sin will stop God's plan for your life or for your children's life or your grandchildren's life because he works through the greatest of sinners for the greatest of purposes in order to redeem even our greatest sin for his glory. So God uses the small. He uses the sinner. And there's one other type of person that God uses, and that is the sufferer. Now, again, I don't know you guys, other than those of you I met this morning. I don't know your stories, but I have no doubt that every single one of you in this room has some story of suffering, some heartache, some trauma that you have been through in your life. And therefore, you all know that heartache has a way of crippling us for a time. It's in these times of suffering that we feel, amongst so many other things, we just feel useless. But what we see here is a couple of examples of God redeeming the heartaches of people for his purposes. If we went to the Old Testament and we looked at the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth is about a Moabite woman who marries an Israelite man, and that man dies early on in their marriage and she becomes a widow. And her mother-in-law, her husband's wife, uh, mother, was also a widow. And so you have these two widows who move back to Israel. They are alone, no one to take care of them, no one to provide for them, no one to protect them, no one to love them. And here Ruth, this young widow girl, is now a foreigner in a strange land. She is desperate, and she was suffering, and she was very likely and reasonably scared, wondering who will provide for her, who will protect her, who will love her. And the Lord brings a man named Boaz, who is a relative of her dead husband, and Boaz agrees to marry her, and the the text says to redeem her restoring her life now look at verse 32 in our passage who do we find the son of jesse the son of obed the son of boaz boaz this man that married ruth is the great grandfather of king david who's in the line of christ And so Ruth's story is a story of suffering, but through her suffering, the Lord brings her personal redemption, and also through her suffering, he is bringing redemption for the whole world through Christ. Or in verse 38, at the very end of this, we see the last name given, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, who is the son of God. What about Adam? Think about Adam. Smallest sin with the biggest consequence. He of a fruit and from that one bite comes childhood leukemia tumors tornadoes, earthquakes famine one small sin plunging the whole world into ruin into spiritual death, into condemnation. But in the midst of that curse, go back in Genesis 3, God makes a promise. There, even as the dust was settling on that sin, God makes a promise in Genesis 3.15 and says that the seed of the woman will one day crush the head of the serpent. In other words, God promised Eve there in the midst of the garden that one would come who would defeat sin and who would defeat Satan. And so the story goes on. Adam had two sons. You know them, Cain and Abel. Well, Genesis 4, what happens? Cain kills Abel. And in that moment, you know, Adam looks at the legacy of his sin, and he is suffering the loss of two sons. One was murdered and one was exiled by God. He's suffering. Look what he did. Look how he ruined things. And now he's lost his children. But the story continues on at the end of Genesis 4, it says, Eve conceived and bore a son named Seth. God was faithful. And in the midst of their suffering and grief, God continues to work, and he provides for them another son. In the midst of the curse and the chaos, this Seth was born. Who would, we find, be in the line of that Savior that was promised to Eve? Now, what is the point? The point is this, dear Christian. We may suffer greatly, But God uses our suffering and he redeems our suffering into glory as part of his bigger plan, his his greater story. And so for the believer, your suffering, your loss, your grief, your heartache, hear me, it is not in vain. It is all used by God as part of what he is doing to exalt Christ as the savior of the nations. And so... Do you wonder? Do you wonder if your life is important enough? Or do you wonder if you've messed up too much or if life is just too much of a mess? If so, there is good news in this genealogy for you. It shows us that the small, the sinner, the sufferer, all of these people are are part of God's plan to redeem the world through Christ. Christ. And because they were ultimately connected to Jesus, their insignificance, their sin, their suffering in the end did not define them because Christ did. And so it is with us. God is not just redeeming the lives of these people in order to bring about the physical birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago, but he is redeeming all of our lives To bring about the exaltation of Christ who is bringing resurrection for all of creation. This is why the genealogy ends in verse 38 by saying Adam is the son of God. What he's showing us is that Adam is the father of all people. And so... Jesus did not come just to redeem Israel. He didn't come just to redeem the religious or the important or the righteous. He came to bring redemption for all people. He came to redeem all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all cultures. No matter who you are, no matter what your family history is, no matter where you live, no matter what you have in your past, no matter how shameful your family history is, no matter how insignificant you are, no matter how young you are, how old you are, how educated you are or not educated you are, no matter how great your sin, no matter how great your trauma that you've suffered is, it does not matter. Christ has come not only to save you, but actually to redeem all of you all of your life being turned around. He turns our hurts and our failures and our ruin into something beautiful and glorious when we place our trust in him. And so, beloved, if you want, as our culture tells you to have, if you want significance, significance isn't found in your job or your grades or your social status or what college you go to, Or how big your bank account is. Or how many likes you get on Instagram. Significance is found only in being connected to Jesus. And if you've really messed up. If your sin is big. If you know that you've really, really done wrong. The good news is that you can go to Christ. In repentance and faith. And in him, even the worst parts of you. The worst moments of your life are redeemed for glory. Or if you're suffering, if you're holding on to a lot of hurt, a lot of trauma, you can look to Christ who redeems all things, even your hurt. So that as one day, you look upon the face of Christ. On that day, all your mourning is turned to dancing. And somehow the Bible tells us in the book of Romans, your joy is actually multiplied it is actually greater in heaven because of the suffering that you have endured in this life what does this genealogy tell us it tells us that god knows us that he cares that he uses us even the small the sinful and the suffering let's pray Lord God, thank you for your great grace. Thank you that you, the high king of heaven, who created all that is and holds us together by the word of your power, you have delighted in knowing us, of caring for us, And have ordained by your grace to use us to redeem our sins and our sorrows for your great purpose in Christ. And so, Lord, help us to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus that outshines everything that this world has to offer. And help us to long to only and simply be a part of what you are doing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.